know I absolutely love when something happens in the news or in the culture that is like the perfect setup for what we're going to be talking about when we're going through the scriptures here on a Sunday morning at Cross Connection Church. And I shared with the church several weeks ago that we were going to be beginning a new series this week, the week following Easter, calling or called Unmasking Jesus. And so we're going to be starting a new series today called Unmasking Jesus. And there is a, a good chance that you saw in the news this last week that a federal judge in Florida overturned the CDC's mask mandates for airlines. Now, this overturning of the mask mandate was met with some fairly interesting responses. The White House wasn't very happy about it. In fact, I read in the news this last week that they're going to be trying to appeal the decision in a higher court. A number of people that I saw on Twitter and other social media platforms, they were very unhappy with the decision as well, as well as a lot of other people who were very happy with it. And you know who was seemingly, from what I could see, uh, very, very happy about the decision were the airlines and those who work for the airlines and those the vast majority of those people who were on the airlines traveling this last week. I saw more than a few videos online over the last several days of people who were cheering and rejoicing when they were able to take off the mask on the airlines. So with the unmasking of the airlines being in the news this week, I really don't think that I could have planned it better to begin a series called Unmasking Jesus If I Had Tried. It was kind of like the perfect setup for this. So it, it seems all the more applicable this week than it did just three weeks ago, which is kind of funny because if you think about it, you go back three years, there wouldn't have been much sense to the, the title Unmasking Jesus whatsoever. I mean, it wouldn't have made any sense at all. But it, it does today a little bit. After more than two years of two weeks to slow the spread and social distancing and masks in just about every place. The, the primary place where masks were now last to be gone is within airlines, I think. That's about the last place that you really see a lot of them. But that's kind of beside the point of what we're going to be talking about today. What does unmasking Jesus mean? What is that all about? Well, I want to do my best to try and set up what it is that we're going to be looking at this week and over the next several weeks in this small mini-series that we're going to be doing calling, called Unmasking Jesus. The Gospel of John, you know the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospel of John opens with these words in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Skipping down to verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I think that those are some of the most beautiful words in all of literature. Now, Spoiler alert, the word, if you look at John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, and we see the word there, capitalized, W-O-R-D, the word in John 1 is Jesus. The word was in the beginning. The word was with God. The word was and is God. The word was active in creation. The word was creator. The word was life. And the word was the origin of all life. All life that exists 
comes from the word because the word is life. But this word, which is personified there in John's gospel, John chapter one, verses one through four, the word is personified as a he. And this he, this word, it was incomprehensible to creation. Though he was before creation, though he made creation, though he is that from which all life springs, that which is alive in this creation could not comprehend the word, this one. In a sense, he, the word, was separate and distinct and invisible, existing outside of time and space in eternity is what we would call it. And so we, we have the word existing, the word making all these things, the word that is life, the word that is the light of men, that which men seek for. And then a number of verses later, down in verse 14 of John chapter one, John comes back to the word. After kind of leaving this idea of the word for a little bit, he comes back to the word and he says, the word became flesh. What does that mean? It means that that which was incomprehensible, that which was invisible and outside of time, it was manifest, it became comprehensible, it became, he became visible. And then after he, the word, became visible, what happened? Well, John says there in verse 14, and we beheld his glory, the glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. As I said, I think that those are some of the most beautiful words in all of literature. And not only are they beautiful words in literature, they are filled with great theological depth. These words are essential in our understanding of the doctrine of the incarnation. Now, what is the doctrine of the incarnation? Well, it is exactly what we read there in those words in John chapter one, the word of God, the logos of God, which is a he and not an it, the word of God that created all things at the beginning, he came into his creation so that his creation could see and behold the fullness of his glory and that they could comprehend the greatness of his grace and his truth. That is the incarnation. The Latin word incarnatio or incarnari is literally to become flesh. And so the incarnation means to become flesh. So God became flesh. He became a man. And this is an essential teaching within Christianity. It has been since the very beginning. I mean, go back to the New Testament and the early church fathers. So the apostles who are the writers of the New Testament, the teachers of the New Testament time and the early church fathers, this doctrine of the Trinity is that which Christians have believed. I'm sorry, doctrine of incarnation is that which Christians have believed for literally 20 centuries going all the way back. God became a man. And this is essential to what we believe and how we live. God in Christ is revealing himself in all of his fullness to us. That is so very important. And before Christ, before he came into the world, it was impossible for us to fully behold God's glory. Before he came into the world in the Old Testament, so the first 39 books of the Bible, under the Old Covenant, there was, if you will, a veil that made it impossible to behold God's glory fully. Even as God tried to reveal himself to those people that he called to be his own people, the Jewish people, when he was revealing himself to those people, there was still a veil. He was not able to be fully disclosed to them. But the apostle Paul in the New Testament, in one of his letters in 2 Corinthians, he tells us that this veil that was there under the old covenant, it is removed in Jesus. He says this in 
2 Corinthians chapter 3. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of that which was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because, note this, the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. Okay, what, what is Paul talking about there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, when we see Moses mentioned and the children of Israel mentioned and a veil that is mentioned? What, what is going on there? What is all this about? Well, very quick history lesson, kind of a detour going back to the Old Testament book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. In the 34th chapter of the second book of the Bible, Moses has an encounter with God and God reveals some aspect, some portion of his glory to Moses. Now, Moses is not able to see the fullness of God's glory there in Exodus chapter 34 because God tells him that no one can stand in my glory or see my glory and, and live. And so God makes a provision for Moses to be hidden behind the cleft of a rock or something and, and God's presence appears there where Moses is, it, is and then he leaves and Moses is able to see something of the kind of residual afterglow of God's glory. So he sees something of God's glorious glory. And what Moses saw was so glorious and awesome that the book of Exodus tells us in chapter 34 that Moses's face was somehow altered or transformed by coming into contact with the glory of God. So much so was Moses' face altered or transformed by coming in contact with the presence of God that he put a veil. He masked his face, if you will. He put a veil on his face because the children of Israel were kind of freaked out, apparently, by how his appearance had been altered. But not only that, Paul tells us here in 2 Corinthians that part of the reason that Moses put the veil, the mask on his face, was not just to hide the glory from the people, but to hide the fact that this transformation was, was fleeting. It was temporary. It was going away. Now, I know that that sounds like really, really strange, but that whole historical situation with Moses and the children of Israel and the veil and the glory of God in Exodus chapter 34, that's not really my focus. So why do I bring this up? Because as Paul teaches there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, when he's taking that thing that happened years ago in the book of Exodus, and he's bringing it up to the New Covenant, the New Testament, as Paul is sharing there, he makes it very clear that apart from Christ Jesus, we cannot behold the fullness of the glory of God. Not completely. And Jesus is the revealing of the glory of God. He is the unmasking of the greatness of God's glory. Paul says right there in this passage that the veil is taken away in Christ. And he says, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. What does all of that mean? Well, this is what I, I think it means. When we behold the unmasked glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And he, as John says in John chapter 1, verse 14, he is the image of the invisible God. That's actually from Hebrews chapter 1. But we in him behold the glory of God, the fullness of the glory of God. When we behold the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, 
In the same way that Moses was altered and transformed in his appearance in Exodus chapter 34, we are transformed by his glory into glory, from glory to glory, Paul says there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And in Christ, this transformation is not temporary as it was with Moses. Now this idea of us being transformed from glory to glory by the presence of God, being in the presence of God or beholding God, this is what early Christians in the first four centuries of Christianity, this is what they would call theosis. Now this isn't really something that Christians talk a lot about in Protestant circles, especially here in the United States where we're largely a Protestant Christian nation when we have Christian circles in our nation. But this has been, this idea of theosis has been core to Christianity for a very long time. If you read the early church fathers, these are the individuals who brought forth the, the great teaching on the scriptures after the apostles, after the first century. So in the second, third, and fourth century, if you read from the writings of the church fathers, like Athanasius or Irenaeus, if you read the church fathers, you see this concept, this idea of theosis a lot. And you also find it in the scriptures. For instance, in, in John's, one of John's letter, 1 John chapter three, we read this in 1 John three, verse two. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So right there in those verses, 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, we see this concept, this idea of theosis, of us being transformed. When we see him, when he is revealed to us, we shall be like him. There's a transformation that's going to take place. We shall see him as he is. We find this in 1 Thessalonians 4. We found this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We find this scattered throughout the scriptures that there is going to be a transformation, a deification, a theosis that's going to take place. Now, I realize this is a hard one for many of us to wrap our minds around. But the teaching of the church for 2000 years has basically been this. The word became as we are. And when I say the word, capital W-O-R-D, the word from John chapter one, verses one through four, the word became as we are so that through him, we might become as he is. Jesus came so that we could behold God's glory with unmasked face. And so that we could be transformed from glory to greater glory by the spirit of God working in us through him. Cause he's the one that dispatches or gives the spirit to us. And so John says there in first John chapter three, everyone who has this hope, this hope of transformation or what you might call glorification or theosis, whatever word you want to apply to it. It's a teaching is found in the scripture. Everyone that has this hope, a certainty that that's going to come sometime in the future, that person purifies themselves just as God is pure. So there's, there's a work that God is doing in us, but there's also a work that we're playing in this whole transformation process as well, which is an amazing thing to consider and to think about. And when I think about these things, my earnest expectation is ho and hope is that as a follower and disciple of Christ, that in and by Christ, as I behold him and his glory, I am being transformed. I am being purified as by the spirit of the Lord. And when I see him, ultimately there's going to come a day when I, when I move from this life into the next life where I'm going to see him. And when I see him, I shall be like him. And in that moment, he will transform this lowly body. Paul says in Philippians chapter three, that 
The Lord will transform this lowly body that it may be conformed, conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. That is the idea of theosis. It's a, a phenomenal thing to consider that is given to us in the scriptures. So then, this series, Unmasking Jesus. What's the point of this? Well, over the next four weeks, including today, this series is meant to help us to see him as he is, or as the word is manifested in the words of scripture. So the word, the title from John chapter one, verses one through four, as the word is revealed to us in the words of scripture. We want to see him as he is. Why? So that we may better behold his glory. So that we may follow him more faithfully. So that we might become more like him. So that we might reflect and represent him better to the world. So, so think about those things there for just a moment. We want to behold the Lord in his word as he's revealed himself to us. We want to behold the Lord so that we may better behold his glory, so that we may follow him more faithfully, so that we might become more like him, so that we might reflect and represent him better to the world. Now, how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to look at some of the teachings of Christ. We're going to look at some of the words of the word of God. And Jesus is the word of God that I think are often misunderstood or not only do people misunderstand them, but they also get them wrong. And hopefully as we see these words with a bit more clarity, as they are meant to be seen and understood, my hope is that we will begin to be even more transformed. And this is the goal. God desires to transform us. He desires to transform you and me. When you become a follower of Christ, what we would call a disciple of Jesus, an obedient follower of Jesus, God's desire is to transform you. He wants to make you more like him. Paul says in Romans chapter eight that he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son, to the likeness of his son. That's what he wants to do in my life and in yours. How does that transformation take place? Well, one of the ways that it takes place is as we behold his glory, we become more like him. That's what the scriptures say. As we behold his glory, we become more like him. And I believe that this is really important. I believe that our culture at this moment, here we are at the end of April, 2022, our culture, the world that we live in, needs to see the transforming power of Christ at work in, in our lives as Christians. If you're a follower of Jesus, the world around us needs to see the transforming power of God at work in us. It needs to be evident to us. We need to see this transformation taking place, but it also needs to be apparent and evident, not only to us, but to all of those around us, those that we interact with on a regular basis. It needs to be seen by them that we have been altered by the presence of Christ in our lives and the transformation in us should not be veiled as it was with Moses. It needs to be clear. It needs to be seen to those that we live with, to those that we live next door to, those that we work with, those that we are related to, those that we hang out with on a regular basis. It needs to be seen that the power of Christ is changing and transforming us such that we are not conformed to this world, but we begin to be conformed more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. So how are we going to do that? What teaching of Christ are we going to be looking at? Well, we're going to be looking at one of the, the great passages of the gospel, which seems to contain 
the greatest hits, if you will, of Jesus's teaching. And we find that passage that contains the greatest hits of Jesus's teaching. We find it both in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. But we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And that passage, Matthew's five, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, it is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I want to say at the outset of this that I, I do think that there was a moment in the Gospel as Matthew records it in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus was on a hilltop on a mountain near the Sea of Galilee where he delivered this message. But at the same time that I say that the Sermon on the Mount was a message that Jesus gave at a specific time, I think it's also worth noting that this message that's contained in Matthew chapter four or chapter five, six, and seven, and also I believe in Luke chapter six, this message that we call the Sermon on the Mount, it was not just a message that was given at a place and a time, which might sound kind of weird, but the teaching that is recorded in Matthew chapters five, six, and seven, it, it seems to be the teaching of Jesus that he would give for his disciples in several different places as he traveled around Galilee in the early portion of his ministry. In a sense, the message recorded here in this passage, the Sermon on the Mount, it's kind of like Jesus's stump speech. Now, stump speech is the speech that a politician gives like everywhere they go. It's like basically the same speech that they give everywhere they go. Maybe minor you know, changes here and there, but for the most part, the core of the message is basically the same. So what I'm saying is the Sermon on the Mount, I believe contains the message that Jesus would share as he was traveling around Galilee or wherever he was going. It's the core body of what it is that he would teach. And I say that this was not a single message delivered at a single time in a single place necessarily because Matthew says that this message took place on a mountain as we're gonna see in Matthew chapter five, verse one near the Sea of Galilee, but Luke's record of the similar message says that it was given um, in a plane, not a plane that flies in the sky, but like a, a field in a plane. So the question would be, is this the Sermon on the Mount or is this the Sermon on the Plain? And I think the answer is yes. I think that this is the great distillation, if you will, of Jesus's teaching for his followers. This is the message that he would give to his disciples. When he would speak to the multitudes, Jesus would primarily speak in parables. We find that in Matthew chapter 13, that whenever Jesus was talking to the multitudes, he would speak in parables. But then there were people that heard the parables of Jesus and they would come and they would inquire. They would want more. And they would ask questions about the parables and he would answer their questions about the stories, the parables that he would tell. But also, what did he teach? What was the teaching of Jesus? I think that the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, Luke chapter six, that this message is the distillation of Jesus's teaching for his disciples. And I believe that this message, this passage is very important. Very important for the way that God wants to work in us and transform us. He wants to transform you as a follower, a disciple of Jesus through his word as we find it, not just everywhere in the scriptures, which is true, but especially in this passage called the Sermon on the Mount. And I also think that this important passage contains some teaching that we, we can sometimes overlook or misunderstand and that we as Christians can fail to take to heart or to put into practice in our lives. All that to say that if we are going to behold with unveiled or unmasked face the glory of the Lord and be transformed into the same image, so that we become more like Christ, then we, we need to better understand and apply 
the teaching that we find here in the Gospels, but especially what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's worth noting that I think I could spend several months preaching through Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And actually, I have in the past. I taught a Bible college class many years ago on the Sermon on the Mount and took more than three months going through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 very slowly through this text. But for this series that we're going through called Unmasking Jesus, I'm, I'm only going to spend four weeks in this text looking at some things that I think are important for us for such a time as this, for for us as Christians living in Southern California or in the United States or in the Western world in the early part, still kind of the early part of the 21st century, I think that there are some teachings in here, a lot of teachings in here, but there are some specific things that I think are going to be important for us for such a time as this. And the purpose of our study in this section is that we, with unmasked face, we want to consider and behold Christ's teaching in this section so that we might become more like him. That is the goal. And I don't think I can emphasize enough how important this is for, for us as Christians living in this culture at this point in time. It is so critical that our culture see Christ-likeness manifested in those who call themselves Christians. There needs to be a uniqueness, a distinctness to those who are followers of Christ. And I'm not sure that we are seeing it at this moment. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it is in many ways absent that Christians are clearly distinct and separated from other people in the culture. And when I say distinct and separated, I don't mean like they kind of hide off and cloister away from the culture, but that even in the midst of the culture, it is evident that we are in the world, but we're not of the world. It's evident that we are different in the way that we conduct ourselves. In 2022, Christians are often no less partisan than non-Christians. They are many times no less abrasive and kind of angry than those who are outside the church. In 2022, we do not appear to be any more gracious, kind, merciful, loving, honest, patient. Go down the list, self-controlled. I think that a lot of times we Christians don't often look all that much different from a lot of the people who are not believers or not Christians. And this is really not good. It's, it's horribly bad. And, and I'm not saying this as a condemnation upon you or other Christians. I, I say this as something that I would speak to myself. It needs to be evident that I am different in the way that I live in this world and that I am manifesting those things that are connected to the character of Christ and the, the spirit. Things like love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and so forth. And I think that it is because of this very reality that we can sometimes, as Christians, followers of Jesus, not necessarily be unique or different enough from the rest of the people around us. It's for this very reason that Jesus, 2,000 years ago, pulled his followers, his disciples aside to teach them as he does in this message that we are going to look at. And so we read this. In Matthew chapter 5, the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount, or the opening words of chapter 5, it says, And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and then he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Now notice at the outset here in this passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, notice at the outset of Jesus' teaching that it says, And seeing the multitudes. 
This message that he is giving is in response to him seeing the multitudes. In another passage, I believe it's Matthew chapter nine, it says, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were like a sheep, they were like sheep without a shepherd, they were scattered. So Jesus is moved with compassion as he sees the lostness of the multitudes. And what is Jesus's response when he sees the multitudes who are lost and scattered? Because I, I think you would agree, as we look around our culture today, when we look at the multitudes in our culture today, they are lost and scattered and they're seeking for things that are not helping them. And they are like sheep without a shepherd, for sure. Just like Jesus saw 2000 years ago. So Jesus is moved with compassion when he sees the multitudes. What does he do? What is his response? His response was to focus on his followers, to focus on his disciples. Now, why is this important? I think this is important because the desire of Christ is to reach and minister to the multitudes, to the whole world. But the ministry to the multitudes, it happens as Jesus works in and through his disciples. Jesus works through us to reach those people that are in this world. So the proper way to reach the multitudes is to teach his disciples so that the disciples would become more like him and be able to reach and minister to the multitudes. So, so let me be clear, you, Christian, if you're a Christian, you are God's plan A to reach the world and there is no plan B. I want to say that again. You are God's plan A to reach your neighbor, to reach your brother or sister or mom or dad or cousin, to reach your coworker, to reach, you know, the, the person that you stand next to when you're watching your kids little league game. You are God's plan A to reach those people and there is no plan B. We must become more like him so that many more multitudes might behold him in us. We are plan A and there is no plan B. So we read going on in Matthew chapter five, verse one, and seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain and when he was seated, his disciples came to him and then he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice there in verse three, that verse three opens with that word blessed. And Matthew chapter five, verse three opens a section here in the, the Sermon on the Mount that is referred to as the Beatitudes. And that word Beatitudes, um, I think it's a hard one sometimes for us because I think when we hear the word Beatitude, we actually hear two words, be attitudes. And when we hear it, it kind of stops us for a moment. I know that years ago when I first heard the word beatitude, I kind of misunderstood what that word meant. And so when we hear the two words, be attitudes, then those two words make us think of something that we need to be or to do. But the word beatitudes has nothing to do with be attitudes. Beatitude is one word and it speaks of a state of blessedness you could literally translate the opening words of Matthew chapter five, verse three, where it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You could translate it, oh, how happy are the poor in spirit, which is a strange thing to consider. And Christians have a vision of a future in which we experience the fullness of God's blessing. And that vision that we have of a future where we experience the fullness of God's blessing in his presence it's what Christians for many centuries have referred to as the beatific vision. So beatitudes, the state of being blessed, beatific vision. We have a vision of being in the fullness of his blessing. And I believe that the realization of that future blessed state is found in and through Jesus Christ as we walk 
through and apply his teaching. That as we take to heart the word of God and we behold the Lord through his word, he by his word and by his spirit and by his grace transforms us so that we begin to experience the fullness of this blessing. We will not experience the entirety of that blessing until we are in his presence because the scriptures say in Psalm 16, in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand pleasures forevermore. That's when we have the fullness of that blessing. But we begin to see it come into our lives as we are transformed, as we behold the Lord in his word, as God works by his spirit in our lives. So all of this, this realization of this stuff, it begins with a proper recognition as Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, we begin to lay hold of these things only as we begin to have a proper recognition of our poverty of spirit. Notice what he says there. Matthew 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. What is the, the entry point into coming into the experience of this, this blessedness that we experience in Christ? We have to come to a place where we recognize the poverty of our spirit. And then he goes on in the very next beatitude, the very next blessed in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. As we realize and recognize our poorness of spirit, that brings us to a place of mourning as we grieve over our lostness. Blessed are those who mourn. Then the very next one talks about blessed are the meek. As we are in that place of grieving our lostness, we are humbled by the weight of our sin. And to be meek is to have a proper perspective of who, who you are. Meekness is a humble view of who you are. So we mourn, we, we, we realize our poverty of spirit, we mourn over our lostness. That brings a humility and a meekness into our lives. And then as we have that humility and meekness in our lives, then we begin, as it says there in the very next verse, the very next beatitude, verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Then we begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And only then does God begin to work in us his righteousness. And he begins to fashion in us mercy and purity and peace by the spirit, by his grace. That's what we see in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five, verses seven and eight and nine. God is doing all of these things. Now, the religious leaders of Jesus's day, they taught that righteousness was found in the keeping of rituals and rules and regulations. If you keep the law, if you keep all the traditions, then you will be righteous. If you did all the proper things in the proper way at the proper times, then you would be right. But Jesus says in this very passage, Matthew chapter five, skip down to verse 20. He's speaking about the religious leaders and he says this in Matthew chapter five, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, these very religious people, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think when Jesus's disciples, as he would give this message, whether it was on the mountain there by Galilee or in the plain or wherever he was in Galilee, when Jesus would give this message to his disciples and he would say, unless your righteousness is greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, I think those words would have seemed incredibly high and hard to reach for most of the fishermen and tax collectors and farmers and zealots that Jesus was speaking to among his followers. The scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus's day, they were the most religious and apparently righteous. To all the people, they thought they were righteous because the scribes and the Pharisees and some of the other religious leaders, they did all the right things at all the right times and all the right ways. And so all the people thought, well, those are the righteous people. And Jesus is speaking to the common people. He's even speaking to the people who knew that they were sinners. He's speaking to tax collectors. He's speaking to prostitutes. He's speaking to all kinds of people that had issues and problems. And he says, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you're not going to see the kingdom of God. You're not going to have that beatific vision. You're not going to experience 
the fullness of blessing. And I'm sure to the disciples when they heard that, they had to think, that's impossible. I can't possibly do that. And Jesus says, your righteousness needs to be greater than that. So how is that even possible? Well, you begin to experience the blessedness of righteousness as you realize your poverty of spirit and you humbly mourn over your lostness and then you hunger and thirst for righteousness that is not your own. A righteousness that is given to you in and by Christ that is holy and completely perfect righteousness that's not your own. This is what I need. I need to be clothed in a righteousness that is not my own, that is given to me by Christ. And that is, that is what we find in Christ through salvation. And this is exactly what 2,700 years ago, 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah spoke of and looked forward to. The prophet Isaiah was looking forward to a, a righteousness being given, imputed, imparted to us. And he writes this in Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So let me try to bring this full circle around here. I and you, if you're a follower of Jesus, I am called to be righteous. Righteousness is being right before a holy God. The scribes and the Pharisees, they thought that they became right before a holy God by keeping rules and regulations and rituals and all those sorts of things. If they just keep the laws in the right way at the right time in the right place, then they will be right before God. So I'm called to be righteous, but righteousness is being right and whole before a holy God, which means that righteousness is rightly walking before him and following his commandments in a perfect way. But I have no righteousness in and of myself, of my own. Therefore, I need to be clothed in his righteousness, just like Isaiah was looking forward to. What keeps me from being clothed in his righteousness? I think the greatest hindrance to standing in Christ's righteousness is my own self-righteousness. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were exceedingly self-righteous. Never would they have confessed their need or hungered and thirsted for righteousness from God. So the first thing that needs to happen is I need to recognize and confess my poverty of spirit. I need to recognize that I'm unrighteous and I need to humbly mourn over my lostness and my unrighteousness. And I need to hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is not my own so that I might be filled. And this is exactly what one of the Pharisees, a Pharisee named Saul, who became a Christian named Paul, this is exactly what he experienced. And he writes about it in his New Testament letter to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter three. He confesses in Philippians chapter three, he says that concerning the law, I was righteous. I was a Pharisee and I was blameless. And then he writes this in Philippians chapter three, verse seven. So remember, Paul was a Pharisee named Saul and he thought himself to be perfectly righteous by keeping the law. And then he had an interaction with Jesus. He beheld his glory. And what happened? Philippians chapter three, verse seven. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish, trash, so that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith we begin to become more like him as we recognize our unrighteousness and receive his gift 
of righteousness. And this, I believe, is a continual, repeated process for the Christian. As we live out our life and we follow after Christ, I don't have time to go in depth today because I'm running out of time now through all of Matthew chapter 5. But I believe that Jesus in this chapter, he reveals the weight of the law, which reveals the depth of my lostness. And at every stage, when we see the weight of the law and the depth of our lostness, it should bring us back to Matthew chapter 5 verse 3, a place of experiencing a poverty of spirit. And verse 4, mourning over our lostness. And verse 5, experiencing a meekness or a humble attitude towards our sin. And verse 6, hungering and thirsting after his righteousness. And then God imparts to us or gives to us his righteousness so that we can stand in his righteousness and that we can begin to walk in righteousness. We realize our poverty of spirit and, righteous, and, and our lack of righteousness. We humbly mourn over it. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then God gives us his righteousness and begins to transform us from the inside out. This is the continual process for the Christian, a process that we call sanctification. And this is moving towards glorification or theosis. God wants to transform us. And so what happens? Well, we discover in Matthew chapter 5 that through the teaching of Jesus that anger is just as wicked as murder in verses 21 through 26. And and when we realize that anger is just as bad as murder, though you may have never murdered anybody, I kind of hope that you haven't, you've probably been angry with someone without cause, or you've murdered them in your heart, as we sometimes say. And so Jesus points out that anger is as the sin of murder. And I am wholly guilty of that, meaning I am totally unrighteous. I am no better than a murderer. And at that place where I'm brought back to Matthew 5 verse 3, where I am poor in spirit, I'm unrighteous, and I mourn over it, I'm confessing it and repenting of it, and I, I'm experiencing humility there, then I hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I cry out to God and I say, God, forgive me and give me your righteousness and help me to walk in a way that, that honors and glorifies you. And then I learn in Matthew chapter 5 verses 27 through 30 that not only is anger as bad as murder, but lust after another person Lust is just as wicked as adultery. And hopefully you haven't committed adultery. Some have, but even if you haven't committed adultery, if you've lusted after someone, you are wholly unrighteous and no better than an adulterer. Me, me too. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. And so there we're brought back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. And we, we mourn over our sin and we, we call out to God as we recognize our poverty of spirit and we hunger and thirst after his righteousness and he forgives us and he gives us his righteousness and he helps us to walk in a way that honors him. And then as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount, we get to Matthew chapter 5 verses 33 through 37. And we realize that when I swear and I don't keep my promise, that is unrighteous. And that brings me back to Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. I'm poor in spirit and I mourn over it and I'm humbled and I cry out to God for his forgiveness and his righteousness. And he gives me his righteousness and he helps me to walk in a way that honors him. And then as we continue through this whole section of scripture, we, we realize that when someone does something to us that I don't like and I want to retaliate and I retaliate, I am unrighteous. And I come back to Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 and I say, God, forgive me for my unrighteousness and give me your righteousness and help me to walk in a way that honors you. And this process, as I said, is the process of sanctification moving towards glorification, moving towards 
that ultimate end of salvation, theosis, where we are there with the Lord in this state of great blessedness, God wants to work in us so that he can accomplish this work of salvation. He is working in us to will and to do what is pleasing to him. I, I often share this verse here at Cross Connection Church, my favorite passage of scripture. But God is working in us to will and to do what is pleasing to him. And he, he wants us to work out that salvation work in our lives. This is the whole gig. And, and what is the result? What is the result when we, we walk in these things and we see these things play out? Well, let me read to you the last section of Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to close with this today. After Jesus goes through the Beatitudes, after he shows us the weight of the law, that anger is just as bad as murder, that lust is just as bad as adultery, that not keeping your promises falls short of God's glory. When we see all of those things, he comes down to this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. That you may be sons or daughters of your father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, verse 48, here's the key. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your father in heaven is perfect. Now, zero in on that very last statement from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. It says, therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your father in heaven is perfect. In just about every English translation of the Bible, I'm reading from the New King James Version, but whatever English translation you would pick up, in just about every English translation of the Bible and most commentaries on this passage, those words in Matthew 5, verse 48, therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect, is presented as a command, as if God is saying, thus saith the Lord, you shall be perfect as God is perfect. And there is a sense in which this is commanding that. It's calling us to perfection. But what is fascinating is that this is also a statement of fact. Let, let me try to explain what I mean by this. The opening verb in Matthew 5, verse 48, when it says, you shall be perfect. That word there, shall be, that opening verb in the Greek language is in the future indicative tense in this passage, which, which may mean very little to you at first, but it is a verb indicating a future state and, and not, not just necessarily commanding it. In essence, I think that Jesus is saying, as much as commanding that the people be perfect, Jesus is saying, walk in these things. Love your enemy. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. And then the result is this. The result is you will be perfect. You shall be in the future. It's indicating what you will be, what your state will be. If you do these things, do not hate others. Love those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. The result will be you will be as your father is in heaven. We reflect God's glory as we walk as he walked, as enabled by the Spirit. Going back to those words I mentioned earlier from Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both the will and to do his good pleasure. I say all of this today to make this very simple point. God wants to transform you. 
He wants your life to be different as a follower of his. He wants your life to reflect his glory to a lost and dying world. And he is seeking to transform us as we get to know him through his word. His word is living and powerful and his spirit is alive and active. And God uses his word in my life as I behold his word to transform me so that I would walk in a way that is honoring and glorifying to him. And the world around us, the culture that we live in, needs to see Christians transformed by the grace and power of Jesus. They need to see us being perfected by him. And as we do these things that we saw in that passage, we love our enemies, we pray for those who despitefully use and persecute us, we do good to those who hate us, and we seek to walk in these things, asking God to do that in us. As we do this, he is transforming us. That's what he wants to do. And so my prayer, and I hope I've been able to say it right, I have so many things in my mind as I've been thinking about this for the last several weeks. My prayer as we go through the scriptures here in this passage is that there are some key things that God would use to identify in us areas that we need to cry out to him and mourn over our fallenness. And, you know, one of them is right here in this passage we just saw in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy is what some people would say, but I say to you, love your enemies. And I just think that this is so essentially important for, for me and you as Christians and followers of Jesus right now. And you may say, well, I don't have any enemies, but if you look on social media and you look in our culture and in the news and in politics, it sure seems like we've identified a lot of people who are other than us that are our, our enemies. And maybe they're on the other side of the political landscape. Maybe they have a different view than you do ideologically or religious, religiously, whatever it is. And we, for some reason, have divided ourselves up in 2022 in a way that I haven't seen in any of the previous years of my life. And we Christians need to recognize that God has called us to love our enemies. And we need to do good to those who hate us and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute us. And then we shall be like our father. And as we begin to do these things, then you shall be perfect, mature, complete, just as your father is perfect, mature, and complete. He wants to do a work of changing us. And so it's my prayer that God would change us as we take heart to these things. And maybe when we read his words, you shall love your enemies and do good to those who hate us. Maybe it takes us back to Matthew chapter five, verse three. And there we read, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we say, God, I have not done a very good job lately of loving my enemies and doing good to those who hate me and praying for those who spitefully use and persecute me. And, and maybe we mourn over it. We say, Lord, I realize that that is wrong. And I pray that you would do a work in me. And we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then on the other side of that, as he gives us his righteousness, we are merciful and there's a purity of heart and there's a peacemaking in us that we're reaching out to those people. Our Lord is the Prince of Peace. And he wants us to reach out with grace and love and peace to those who are outside of our group and to bring them the good news of the gospel. And so God, I pray that you would work in us and Lord, you would reveal if there's any area of our lives that is out of step with your character. And Lord, that you'd help us today to be poor in spirit, to acknowledge and recognize our unrighteousness, to mourn over it and to give it to you humbly and say, Lord, take this, I confess it. Rid me of this. And then Lord, we hunger and thirst for your righteousness. Clothe us with your righteousness. Help us to be merciful and pure peacemakers. God, work in your church. Make us stand out as a bright shining light of goodness and grace and truth and love in the culture that we live in because our culture needs to see it. 
We ask this today in Jesus' name, amen.